Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I would say this, the church that cannot learn from Israel's history is doomed to repeat it. So if there's one thing that you remember from this sermon this morning, I want it to be this. You need to repent of your sin because rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. You need to repent of your sin because rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. Now, we're coming into Genesis 9:18. It is after Noah's flood, and we have a new world, right? This that recreation language uh, that we saw in uh, chapter 8. God has decreated the world and then he's recreated it. And we have a new world, but the same old sinful humanity. Genesis 9, 18 through eleven nine is very similar to Genesis 3 through chapter 6. It's repeating. We see history repeating itself. Uh, we will see partaking of fruit that leads to nakedness. We will see shame as a result. A curse, and then eventually exile. And so as we read these portions of Scripture, you're going to hear that similar language that we have in Genesis chapter 3 and then also in Genesis chapter 6 and following. So Genesis 9, 18 gives us our setting. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then there in parentheses, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And then we see some garden language. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, the question arises immediately, at least for me and I'm sure for many of you, what just happened? Like, what in the world just happened? Now, there's a lot of debate. I'm going to give you the three Uh, biggest uh, explanations that I've seen, and we're going to go with the one that I think explains it the best. Uh, First, there are some that believe that Ham had homosexual relations with his father, and I I just will quickly dismiss that. The language that is used of homosexual sex does not match in other portions of the scripture with what is going on here. And so uh, that just doesn't have much support. The next two theories do have merit. Uh, Theory number two would be that uh, Canaan or Ham just saw his father naked and uh, he talked about him in public and brought shame to him. And so the curse on Canaan 
was kind of an eye for an eye situation. We had we had uh, Ham, who was a youngest son of Noah, uh, dishonoring his father, and so Canaan was cursed as a dishonoring youngest son to Ham. Okay, that's theory number two. Theory number three, and this is the one that I believe has the most merit, is that Ham uh, had sexual relations with his mother, resulting in the birth of Canaan. Okay? And some of the proofs that I think stand out for that is in Genesis 9.18, we have this tacked on statement there that you find in parentheses uh, in verse 18, Ham was the father of Canaan. In other words, not Noah. And if you imagine some of the little kids walking around, they're like, well, but I thought Grandma Noah had Canaan. Well, no, no. Ham's the father of Canaan. And, And it repeats that a few times in our passage. Secondly, the phrase, saw the nakedness of his father, the nakedness of someone, or uncovering the nakedness of someone, is, is an, an idiom in the scriptures that refers to sexual relations, and it can refer to sexual relations with a man's wife. Biblically, a man and his wife are joined together. Therefore, her nakedness is his nakedness. So to have sexual relations with her brings shame not only to her, but to her husband. Uh, One commentary said this, The meaning of the idiom is not literally to uncover someone's naked body, but rather to engage in sexual activity that exposes the other person to violation and shame. This is evident in Leviticus 18, and we're going to look there in Leviticus 18. This is evident in Leviticus 18, where having intercourse with one's mother does not uncover only her nakedness, but also that of one's father. Now, on your handout there, you have some scriptures from Leviticus 18 that I've included. If you look at verses 7 through 9, we see this idea that uh, the, the, the wife's nakedness was the same as her husband's. Leviticus 18.7, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. So we see here that seeing the nakedness of and and it, when it refers to it being Noah it can be referring to his wife then if you look there in Leviticus 18:3 remembering that Genesis is written to the people of Israel as they're on their way from the promised land to Egypt okay so this is these are the Israelites and in Leviticus 18 it says you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then immediately what follows is this information about uncovering the nakedness of. 
And that seems to point to the fact that this is what the Egyptians were known for. This is also what the Canaanites were known for. And I think that cues us in that that is what happened here with Ham and his mother. As far as the curse itself, I think rather than inherit as a son of Noah, Canaan will serve his brothers. Instead of inheriting with them, he is set apart to serve them as far as this curse goes. The final argument for Canaan being the son of Ham and Noah's wife is that it fits the pattern of sin that we see in other scriptures. We see Lot and his daughters. We have Reuben uh, with Jacob's wife. We have Judah and Tamar. And then when David's son Adonijah tried to take David's handmaid to be his wife, it was perhaps a ploy to take the kingdom from Solomon. So here we have Ham shaming his father by having sexual relations with Noah's wife. And there is a son born of that who is then under a curse. So we have Ham, a son who does not honor his father. We have a son who rebels against his father's authority. Noah sins in drunkenness. Ham sins by shaming his father. Sin abounds. And as in Genesis 3, a curse results. Look at verse 624 in Genesis 6. Genesis 6.24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Here we see that the promise of the offspring of the woman was going to continue through Shem. Shem's name means name. Okay, Don't let that confuse you. Right? Who's on first? Don't get into that. Right? Shem's name means name. And so what we see here is that the blessing is directed towards the Lord, the God of Shem. One commentator said this, By blessing the God of the man and the tribe, the man himself is blessed. The idea is that Shem would ascribe his good fortune to the Lord, for his advantage would be his relationship to the Lord. So the promise to the seed of the woman is going to continue through Shem. Japheth seems to have a derivative hope, one where he benefits from God's blessing on Shem as he dwells in the tents of Shem. This foreshadows the Gentiles' blessing through Abraham's offspring. But as in Genesis 3 when Satan was cursed, in Genesis 4 when Cain was cursed, now in Genesis 6, Canaan is cursed. The seed of the serpent is going to continue, or the offspring of the serpent is going to continue through Ham's Children. So that's the fall 2.0. Next, we're going to see rebellion during multiplication, like we did in Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, we're told that the, when the sons of men began to multiply on the earth, the, 
The sons of God saw the daughters of men. We, we had that language. We're going to see a rebellion during multiplication 2.0. Now, it's been said, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. In other words, your children learn more from what you do than what you say. They imitate what they see more than what they hear. It's why we have the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. In Genesis 10, we are presented with what is commonly referred to as the table of nations. It's a list of the 70 nations that descended from from Noah's children. And we're not going to read the whole chapter for the sake of time, but I want you to note a few of the more important texts in here, or things in these texts. I want you to notice that all of Israel's enemies arise from Ham's children. We have Egypt, we have Canaan, Babylon, Assyria, Nineveh, and the Philistines, among others. Like their father, they are rebellious. And parents... I want to talk to you for just a minute. Your actions with your children have a greater impact than you'll ever know. It's been said that your children watch you for 18 years. They record you for 18 years. And then when they hit 18, they begin to live their life. They hit play. And they live out what they've learned. Make God the foremost in your life. Make God's people the foremost in your life. Make God's kingdom the foremost in your life. Let your children see you serving Jesus with your life. Church needs to be important. But beloved, it can't just be church. You can't just come to church and look nice once a week and then live like hellions throughout the week. Your children will, are, are doomed to repeat that history, if you will. Now, everybody has a chance to repent, right, and follow Christ. But I'm encouraging you as parents, watch what you say, watch what you do. Some of you, maybe even after the service, need to have a conversation with your wife and children or your spouse and your children, and you need to apologize for some of your actions. That's what we do when we do wrong, right? We repent, we ask forgiveness. And then we move on. So all of Israel's enemies arise from Ham's children. They've seen their father's actions and they repeat them. We find in this passage the first mention of nations in verses 5, 20, and 31. The first mention of nations. We also find the Bible's first mention of kingdom in verse 10. Then, then something else, as you read through these in your own time, in each genealogy something happens that indicates a major event must have happened. In verse 5 we're told that Japheth's clan, uh, we're told that they were the coastland peoples, that's where they spread in their lands. In verse 17 we are told afterward the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. Well, after what? 
In verse 25, we learn that one of Shem's great-great-grandchildren was named Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. What in the world happened? Well, we find a clue in Ham's genealogy in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 10. There we meet Nimrod. Now, in our modern vernacular, Nimrod means something like an idiot. But Nimrod's name actually means son of rebellion in his own language, or rebellious one. He is described here as a mighty man, which recalls the rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis 6, because of the, Neph- the Nephilim were of the mighty men. So, so the author here is wanting us to recall what has happened in Genesis 6 when the world was multiplying the first time and we had a rebellion of the sons of God. Now we're seeing here rebellion occurring in the sons of men. We have a mighty man. He develops quite a reputation or name for himself. And one's name becomes an important theme as we move forward in the scriptures. Again, we see the first use of kingdom. It's Nimrod's kingdom that begins in Babel. What does Babel mean? Well, in Hebrew, it has this meaning of babbling on like what we have, incoherent babbling. But in his own language for Nimrod, Babel means the gate of the gods. The gate of the gods. And what we're going to see here is instead of the sons of God coming down to men, we're going to see Nimrod in the account of the building of Babylon trying to build a tower to the gods, trying to make that connection. But let's read the account in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 12. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. In other words, his name, his reputation was was rivaling the reputation of the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kauna in the land of Shinar. From that land, okay, so now something happened when he was in Babel, right? From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Now, that's, that's dropping a little hyperlink for us to the book of Jonah, where Nineveh and its surrounding cities is called the great city. We don't have time to get into that. But, like the spawn of the watchers in Genesis 6, Nimrod builds his kingdom through violence and corruption. I believe Nimrod is the leader of the rebellion at Babel. Instead of obeying God's decree to go forth and multiply and fill the earth with God's image bearers, Nimrod gathers people at Babel and attempts to build a tower that reaches the heavens. And he's concerned with making their name great, not the Lord's name. Instead of divine watchers coming down to the earth, as in Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, 1 through 9, we have humans attempting to reach the heavens. So let's read the details of how this rebellion leads to exile. Look at Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. 
Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is utter rebellion against God's command. They are attempting to create a gateway to the gods. Though their tower is supposed to reach the heavens, we see in the next verse, they didn't quite make it. We have a little bit of irony here. Verse 5, it says, and the Lord what? Came down. Let's go down, right? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Why is it so important to stop mankind from unifying to do the impossible? Well, remember what the Lord said in chapter 8, verse 21, when Noah got off the earth and he made the offering. He said, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Unified mankind can do wonderful things, but ultimately those things will be used for evil and for injustice and for corruption. Because prior to... The flood, the world was full of violence and corruption. It was not God's good creation as he intended. And so when man is unified in what he does, he does does a lot of good things. There's a lot of advancements we've made in history throughout the years, but we've also seen, you know, gunpowder, which was originally used for fireworks, turned into weapons. I mean, it's just what we do. We corrupt things. Verse 8, now we see the behind the scenes that was happening in those genealogies as to why they were scattered. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them. Over the face of all the earth. The Lord disperses the people from Babel all over the world. But that's not all. Similar to when Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden. And when all humanity was judged by the flood. The Lord in effect exiles the nations here. We read of this in Moses' song in in Deuteronomy 32 verses 7 through 9. Moses is leaving the children of Israel with one last song, and it's not a very good song. He he knows the future. He knows that the children of Israel are going to reject the Lord. And so he's warning them in this song. And we come into Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. He says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. 
When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, remember Peleg's name? When God divided the world, that's, that's the hyperlink back. Remember when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay, so what happened here in Babel, when God dispersed the nations, were being given more information in Deuteronomy when it was written to the children of Israel. What we see here is the Lord in his providence oversees the giving of land to different nations. But more than that is going on here. The borders are given according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, if you have an older translation, you may see that it says to the sons of, of Israel. When, and, and we have 70 nations given uh, when Jacob and his uh, sons went down into Egypt. We're told that there was 70 to 73 people that went down in there. So that's one thought on that. But when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they noticed that it matched what was in the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation. And, and therefore, they've always wondered why the Septuagint was different there, why it said sons of God. And what they believe when they found these old, old manuscripts is that the Septuagint had the accurate translation. And so in our ESV, we find according to the sons of God. But what we have here is the most high God. It's the only place it's used in, in Deuteronomy. He disinherits the nations. And I believe he gives them over to lesser divine beings. When we look in the New Testament, we see that we are battling against principalities and powers and, and spiritual forces in, in the heavenly places. Evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places. I believe that God dispersed the nations and he placed them under the rule of these lesser divine beings. And then he said, Jacob is going to be my heritage. Okay. God disinherits the nations. These lesser divine beings will be their lowercase g gods, if you will. And then in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, the Lord starts over with Abraham. From Abraham will come God's nation. And we see that in Genesis 12, verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And yet in this promise to Abraham. All the families of the earth have hope of being blessed along with Abraham. But we end our look at Genesis 9.18-11.9 through 11, 9 by observing that Ham's dishonoring of his father. Eventually led to the exile of the nations. So remember, rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. Rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. And Moses was writing this to the children of Israel as they're on the way from Egypt to the, Canaan, to the land of Canaan. 
the Lord told Pharaoh that Israel was his firstborn son. So what's the warning for Israel in this passage in Genesis? Well, unchecked rebellion against the father will lead to exile among the nations and their lesser gods. Unchecked rebellion against the father will lead to exile among the nations and their lesser gods. Rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. Now, we've already looked at Leviticus 18 where God said, I want you to keep my statutes and I don't want you to be like Egypt was and I don't want you to be like Canaan is where you're going into. And then he talks about these sexual ethics. The Israelites are to keep the Lord's statutes. And if you look at Leviticus 18 verses 28 and 29 on your handout, he makes this statement. They are to keep the Lord's statutes lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. Now the nation of Israel actually eventually made it into the promised land. And they subjugated the Canaanites and they fulfilled that. So that, that, that curse of Noah was fulfilled when the Israelites went into Canaan. But Israel failed to be an obedient son that pleased their heavenly father. They, like Ham, dishonored God. And he talks about how their worship of other gods is like adultery. And eventually, this disobedient son, Israel, was exiled from the promised land. And where were they exiled to? Babylon. Ironic, isn't it? Israel failed to keep the Lord's statutes. There was a need for a greater Israel, one who would be a perfectly obedient son to the Father. And Jesus is the true Israel who fulfilled Hosea 11.1 as the son who was called out of Egypt. Jesus was the son with whom the Father was well pleased. Jesus was the son who died for the sins of his people. And if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I urge you this morning, repent of your sins and ask God to forgive you because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection. Follow him as the king of your life. If you do so, God will place his spirit of adoption, we're told, in you. And you will become a son. But what kind of son will you be? Will you be a son that honors the father? Or will you be like Ham and his children who incur God's wrath? After Jesus' resurrection on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to God's people. And it just so happens, I didn't plan it this way. I wish I was this brilliant. But today is the day that we celebrate Pentecost in the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit, 50 days after the Passover, which is when Christ was crucified. 
On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to God's people. And it is a reversal of what happened in, at Babel. We're told there that God's Spirit came like flaming tongues on his disciples, and they went out and they preached, and uh, the, the, we're told of 16 different lang- people groups that were there. That, and they said, but we're all hearing in our same in our own language. And so like Peter was preaching to this group of Hebrews that spoke Hebrew. And, and then this guy was over here speaking to the, the Syrians. And they were hearing him in Aramaic. And, and all these different language groups were represented. The point being that God's nations will not be distinguished by language and borders. God's nation will be marked off by his indwelling spirit. His spirit is called the spirit of adoption. We become children of God when we are saved. So what kind of child will you be? It is Jesus who has been given authority over the nations. And he commands us to be fruitful and multiply disciples. To go and get Jesus his heritage. You see, when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we represent Jesus' rule and reign. We're this little embassy representing God's rule within the nations. And we're calling people out to follow Jesus. In Psalm chapter 2, I've given it to you on your handout. On Psalm chapter 2, after the nations raged against God's anointed one... And, and we know that in the book of Acts, they say that that's when they crucified Jesus. God laughs, and he says, I've set my king on my holy hill. That's resurrecting Jesus in Psalm 2. And then, he, and then the Lord says here, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Speaking of the resurrection. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the earth the end. Uh, and the ends of the earth, your possession. So Jesus is resurrected. He's at a kingly spot next to the Lord, at the Lord's right hand, his hand of power. And he says, ask of me, I'll give you the nations. What did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Yeah. Go and make disciples of what? All nations. See how it's coming around? We're to be out here telling people about King Jesus. Hey, it's wonderful that you're a citizen of the United States of America, but would you like to be a citizen of God's kingdom? Because we have a king who was good. He died for our sins, and he wants you to follow him. And we're to baptize them in the name or the reputation of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We call people from among all nations, all peoples, all tribes and languages to repent and believe the gospel. But we face opposition. Look at Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 13. Here Paul is speaking to the Ephesians and he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those are our enemies. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day 
and having done all to stand firm. You see, we're going out among these nations who have these little g-gods who are ruling them under Satan's kingdom. And we're calling people to repent and to follow King Jesus with us. So what is the warning for us today from our passage in Genesis? Well, I would say this. Unrepentant sin in the church will lead to outright rebellion, which will lead to the devastation of the local church. Unrepentant sin in the church will lead to outright rebellion, which will lead to the devastation of the local church. Why? Because rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. Meaningful church membership is important. Sin is dangerous. It doesn't affect just you. Ham sinned. Do you see the effect that it had on his children and his children's children? Sin never affects just you. The small decisions that you think are not that big a deal will wreck you and affect your children for generations. Meaningful church membership. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you walk with the Lord and to stay away from sin. The unrepentant church member is to be exiled from the church, which represents the kingdom rule of Jesus and turned over to Satan's rule. So if somebody is unrepentant of their sin, they get turned over out of the church and put under Satan's rule. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Verses 1 through 13. We'll move quickly. First Corinthians 5 verse 1, Paul writes to the Corinthians church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Does that sound familiar? Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit, and as if I am present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to who? Satan. No longer under God's rule. Unrepentant sin leaves you in exile from God's good rule. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? Well, we hope that he'll repent so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. Here, with the hope he will repent and return to the Lord and his church. But the church is not being serious about it. Look at verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Undisciplined sin in the church will lead to outright rebellion, which will lead to the devastation of the local church. Now let me say this. 
confession of sin and repentance, that's, that's what we need to be about, right? We're not going around looking for people to kick out in the church. If we find sin, there's Matthew 18, there's this process of calling somebody to repent, right? We want to help you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is a very public sin that's going on, and they have not confronted him. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ died for our sins. We ought to be an unleavened people. We ought to be a repentant But sexual immorality is not the only sin we must be concerned with. Paul goes on to tell us of many other public sins that bring shame upon our Heavenly Father. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul's not concerned here with unsaved people. We've got to hang around people who are sexually immoral and greedy and swindlers every day when we go to work. Well, what's he talking about? Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now when he quotes that, purge the evil person from among you, he's quoting from about five different places in the Old Testament that talk about capital punishment. Because when Israel was the government, if you committed adultery, the punishment for adultery was death. You purged the evil person from among you. And there were a few other sins that were public. Now, with the church, the church does not have the power of the sword. Romans 13 tells us that the government has the power of life and death. So for the church, what we have to do is excommunication. We hand them over to Satan. Hopefully, Hopefully, they'll come back. But that's the final judgment. Right? We call them to repentance, and if they do not repent, we put them out of the church. Purge the evil person from among you. Undisciplined, unrepentant sin in the church will lead to an outright rebellion, which will lead to devastation in the local church. Why? Because rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. So to those who refuse to believe that Jesus is Lord, I ask you to repent and believe. Rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. Ultimately, that will be made very real for eternity because you will be exiled from God's presence in the lake of fire to be judged eternally for your rejection of God's good grace in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But to the members of Faith Baptist Church, I encourage you, do not dabble in sin. 
Don't rebel against God's good rule. Your sin never affects just you. Your family is watching and learning. Your co-workers are watching and learning from your example. We are to be little Christians, little Christs. We're to represent God. We're to be His image bearers. Repent and confess your sin to the Lord. Reconciliation is His desire. He will save His people from His sins. It's His name. But be warned that rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. For you who are here today and you are not a member of any local church. Why do you not come under the authority of God's local church? It's like you're living with one foot in Satan's kingdom and one foot in the church. And you're not taking responsibility for who you're submitting to as far as leadership. And you're not taking responsibility for your brothers and sisters in Christ. What church will you commit to? Right, we, we've compared membership to a marriage. Like, I'm called as a Christian to love every woman, every Christian woman. But I have one woman that I'm committed in covenant to. I love her in a special way. Well, as Christians, we are to love all Christians. But we're to be committed to a particular group of Christians in church membership. I encourage you, become a member of Faith Baptist Church. There's some forms on the outside. There's links on our website. Scan the code on the bulletin. Find that. And if you can't do all that, just ask me. Okay. We'd love to see you become a member here at Faith Baptist Church. Why? Because rebellion against God leads to exile from God's rule. Beloved, let's be a people of God. Let's make much of Him. Let's make His name great. And let's call people out of the nations. Let's celebrate Pentecost by telling others, come out from under Satan's rule. and Come under the good rule of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for these scriptures that warn us about how our rebellion, unchecked and unrepented of, will lead to exile from your good rule. I pray, Father, help us to be a people who loves one another and encourages and lifts up one another in prayer and encouragement and sometimes even rebuke, Father when we're heading in a dangerous direction. Father, help us to follow Jesus together and honor you. Father, if there are some here who have not trusted Christ as their Savior, oh, I pray that you will make them alive today, Lord. Help them to see their sin and help them to see the Savior. And then, Father, for those who have not committed to church membership, oh, Father, I pray that they would not go through this life trying to live the Christian life by themselves because you have told us that we must walk with one another through this and that we are the ones responsible for dealing with sin. You're going to judge the world, but the judgment of our sin falls to the church. And so, 
Father, I pray, help us to love one another and walk with one another through this world in a way that honors and glorifies your name. And we ask it in King Jesus' name. Amen.